0: So, let's turn to God's Word this morning. Uh, Our God is alive and well. And He speaks to us in His Word and in our uh, gathering together this morning. So, let me read John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25, and then we'll pray. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple He found those who were selling oxen, and sheep, and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with with sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away, and do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal. For your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you, will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead... His disciples remembered that He had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the Word that Jesus had spoken. Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. But Jesus on His part did not entrust Himself to them, because He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for He Himself knew what was in man. Let me pray. Lord, we come to you hungry for you to meet us. Our souls thirst for God, for the living God. When can we come and meet with you? Lord, we pray that you would come and uh, meet with us in your word this morning, that by your spirit you would do what you've promised. That you would uh, pierce our hearts with your word, break down our resistance, take away our fears, but also heal us, Lord, and restore us. And give us the great hope that we belong to our Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would be with me and that, you would, uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. And that you would attend uh, to all of us because of your great love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, today I'm talking about zeal, Christ's inner life. You know, I think for many of us, our emotional life uh, is actually somewhat of a terrifying and foreign world. Uh, it's somewhat murky and uh, kind of out of control, often wild. Uh, kids, you know how this is. If you, you know how it is when you're really, really angry or really, really sad and you don't even know how to say it? The reality is, is that you're actually not alone. Uh, most adults also don't know how to describe what they're feeling. Most of us don't know what to do with our emotions. So what happens, at least for uh, many of us, is when we come to this passage and we see Jesus kicking over tables and getting legitimately angry and making a cord and whips, we don't know what to do with this. Right? There's a part of us that feels slightly confused. Some of us, perhaps this is our Reformed tradition, we have this healthy intellectual side. Sometimes we've misunderstood that the healthy intellectual side uh, sometimes we begin to think that that means that the emotional side is actually somehow unimportant rather than understanding they work together. Or uh, perhaps we've misunderstood Paul when he says he, he, uh, in Romans 10.2, if you know your scripture, he rebukes the Jews for having zeal but not according to knowledge. And so we begin to think, well, obviously, knowledge is certainly the most important thing in zeal. We can just leave that aside. So as Christians, when we come to this passage, questions that we ask, as I ask, do we ever feel a zeal like this? Is it even possible for me to get this passionate? Would it be right? Would it be right for me to feel this way? Why do I find myself not caring about the Lord when I actually should? Why do I find my passions and my longing for the Lord slowly eroded? You know, for honest, the big question that comes to us from this passage is just this. And this is true whether you're Christian or non-Christian. Why is God so boring to many of us? Right? Why is he so boring to many of us when clearly to Jesus he is quite important? I say this as someone who uh, very often uh, comes to the scriptures and I think, I kind of just want to veg out. I don't know if I really want to sit down and read. What I want to say is this morning is that our inner life, our emotions, and our zeal are actually closely connected. By zeal, I mean... uh, Intense interest in, jealousy, diligence, serious eagerness for something or someone. Zeal is our emotions of love, anger, and hope fused together and heightened. And so it only comes out when something really important is touched on. So we're going to spend some time this morning looking at Christ's zeal. How does it work? What's it about? What's his inner life like? Once we've done that, I hope we are in a better place to examine some of our own boredom with the Lord. So, we're looking at four things. Christ's zeal produces fury. Christ's zeal is his love for his Father and for us. Christ's zeal is the fruit of his delight with the Father. And then lastly, how Christian zeal works. So Christ's zeal has to do with fury, also love, Delight, And then lastly, we're going to think about what this actually means for us as Christians. So, first off, Christ's zeal produces fury. Probably the most obvious feature of this passage is Jesus is just angry, right? He's quite livid uh, towards these vendors. And it's actually shocking, because you go from chapter 2, which is the beginning of Jesus at this wedding, and it's kind of one of the favorite passages of, you know, uh, Jesus... Wonderful, kind, covering up people's shame, providing for this party, and then he directly goes up to the temple, and all of a sudden, he's angry. (laughs) Uh, Is this the dark side of Jesus? Is this uh, his anger? Is his anger connected to the grace we just saw? What's motivating this anger? Is it right for Jesus to be angry? Well, what I want to say is that this is actually holy anger. Holy anger. Whereas most of our anger happens to be because we've been dishonored in some way, Jesus' anger is actually over his Father being dishonored. So, let's look at how God has been dishonored in two ways. Look at verse 14. You see these uh, vendors and money changers in the temple. Uh, And, you know, just so you know, these people are not just selling trinkets, right? There's no uh, WWJD uh, bracelet stand and uh, get the, you know, Christian t-shirt, Uh, stand. Uh, These are not trinkets. What they're selling are uh, oxen and sheep and pigeons. Well, all of those are the exact animals you need to come and sacrifice in the temple as a Jew at Passover. Right? They're not selling trinkets. They're actually selling the stuff you need to come and worship. And the reality is is that in some ways they're actually providing a service. If we are all Jews and we have to go up at least once a year to the Passover, but we live in Turkey or in Egypt, we're looking at a long travel, long distance trip. So the reality is, is that I need to be able to show up and buy an animal to come and sacrifice. So in one sense, they're actually providing a service, right? You show up, hey, well, well, you can buy an animal, and you can sacrifice it. Well, why is Jesus so angry, then, if they're providing this service? It's that their prices are ridiculously high. It's a form of extortion. You all know how this works, right? Uh, when you go to the airport and you stand in the TSA line, right? And you have your water bottle and you pour it out in the big uh, dumpster now. And then you go through the line and uh, and then how much does water cost on the other side? <laughs> Five dollars, right, for half a liter? This is ridiculous. Uh, that is exactly what is happening here. See, this is not... a simply uh, some act of service on the vendors. They're not thinking, well, you know, I'm gonna, I know my brothers and sisters need to come and worship, so I'm going to provide something. This is a business opportunity. They have taken God's personal gift of worship, God's gift to his people of worship, and found a way to turn it into a commodity, to turn it into something to be sold and profited from. I know, I can make a quick buck if I sell these things at passover. You have to see that this perverts the image of who God is. Right? Instead of God uh, graciously giving his presence to his people and making that available to all the nations to simply come and be in his presence, now uh, it seems like God is rather greedy and petty. And that worship is not for anyone's good but for God's profit. It perverts what worship was supposed to be, pure devotion to the Lord. Instead, it's a money-making scheme. So that's the first thing. The second thing is also where they sold. Where they sold. And where they sold actually not only turned worship into a money-making scheme, it also excluded a whole section of society. People called Gentiles, non-Jews. In fact, in Jesus' day... uh, in the temple, you kind of have the inner court where the Jews could go, and the outer court—you uh, know, if you think about it as like a kind of the foyer or the foyer of the foyer—was uh, the only place the Gentiles could come and offer prayers. Now, probably not the best thing in the world if that's the case, but be that as it may, this is exactly where these vendors are selling. So now, if I'm a Gentile and I want to come and worship the God of Israel and come and pour my heart to God and have Him listen to me. The only place I can do that, people are hawking goods. So now, uh, not only is worship made into a money-making scheme, but uh, my whole experience is one of being excluded. I'm not welcomed. I'm treated as a business opportunity. You have to understand that uh, some of the reason why Jesus is so angry is because uh, these first century Jews are not simply hating their neighbors and excluding them, they're also resisting what God is doing. In fact, the whole mission of Israel was to be a place, a refuge for all the nations. They were supposed to be a priesthood of all the nations. Which means that as a Gentile, I could come and I could be cared for by Jews and they could teach me about who God is and they could pray for me. And Israel was meant to be this bright beacon of hope of the joy of God, a place where God has set up His house. And now I can come in and finally experience true righteousness and true joy and true justice. And yet, God's people had dishonored God by implying that His goodness, His grace towards them was only for their benefit and was not meant to work through them for all the nations. You see, Christ's zeal was his fury at God's goodness being perverted, at God's goodness being ignored. We have to recognize that Jesus' anger is a crucial part of God's goodness. There is something beautiful and wonderful and delightful, the hope of all mankind being lost by this business-making. They dishonored God by simply absorbing God's kindness to them while totally disregarding the purpose of his kindness, which is love for neighbor, God's love of other. And this is actually the second aspect of Jesus' zeal. It's not simply fury, it's also love. In fact, it's kind of the opposite side of the same coin. Jesus' zeal for the temple is not simply uh, his anger for God's goodness being perverted, but his love for his people. Some of this is we have to remember what the temple's for. The reality is that God did not have to provide a place to be listened, to listen to his people. In fact, the big kind of climax of the Old Testament, if you read through it, is the fact that God not only saves the people, but then he moves into their neighborhood. He puts his temple right in the middle of all of his people. And his temple is this physical proof of God's love to his people. Not only have I saved you, but I love you enough to put up my house. And now there's a place where you can come and you can be listened to. And the God of the universe actually cares for you. I mean, this is the whole way that prayer works. Prayer is proof of God's love. Psalm 8 tells us, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? That is the experience of actually praying. God actually cares for me. There's this place that God has put up to forgive his people's sin. In fact, uh, for all of the nations to come and have their sins taken away. The irony here is that the Jewish leaders are actually quite zealous for the temple. Uh, In fact, it was a major source of national pride. If you uh, go back and read through some of the early documents, uh, they have a, a great love of the temple, but their love is simply of the temple. And not of actually what God is doing through the temple. Their pride is in uh, the temple itself and not what God is doing. So Jesus is driven to restore the temple to what it's meant to be, the place that displays God's free grace and love so His people can actually worship and His glory will actually begin to fill the earth. This is what Jesus is doing. He's coming to restore worship. You know... um, I think for many of us, this kind of hatred of evil, driven by a real love, is actually totally foreign for for most of us. It's an experience that many of us have not actually had. Uh, I think in many of our lives, we've experienced uh, a real hatred that has nothing to do with evil. It's just simply hatred. Uh, I had a friend, uh, my wife and I had a friend back in St. Louis we got to know through our church. We had the privilege of walking with him. Uh, in the midst of his marriage falling apart. It was a really tragic time. In fact, there was a few marriages all at the same time. Uh, His wife had been cheating on him for some time, and he came to find out about it. Um, And uh, he felt it was his duty uh, to uh, care for her in the midst of this, to still show her love. In fact, he was very committed to her, even though he was so torn up. So he still attempted to be a kind and loving husband, which is good, uh, but without ever expressing... His anger or his hurt. Simply trying to woo her back by being gracious to her, by showing her mercy and forgiveness. But eventually, what happened is that she just stopped caring. She stopped returning his phone calls and she left. It was very confusing for our friend because, in his mind, he was doing his duty of being gracious. He thought that he was doing what he was right. I met with him sometime afterwards, after the divorce had been finalized, and we were talking, and uh, he just expressed to me, you know, my my real regret is uh, that I didn't even understand how grace is supposed to work. I didn't understand what that's actually supposed to look like. He realized his picture of grace was very narrow. In fact, grace towards his wife, rather than simply uh, just trying to be tender to her all the time, actually what it would have been, would have been fiercely pursuing her. Right? Grace and love for his wife would have been fighting back for her in white-hot anger that she had betrayed him. Real love for his wife would have been saying, you have betrayed me, and that injures me deeply, and I want you back. And I'm mad about it. One of the best ways to know if you've given up on a relationship with a friend or a spouse is if when they hurt you, it just doesn't matter anymore. Right? So, a positive way to say that is uh, conflict in your marriages or your relationships can often be proof that you still care. That you still have a pulse. Because you only fight about things you really care about. I just want you to see that zeal is a healthy human emotion. Zeal, with love and fury, is a healthy human emotion. So if you don't have that, if you're trying to avoid being zealous, you're actually skewing some of what it is to be human. Because it's outworking of real love. Zeal is an outworking of real love. In fact, zeal is the fire and fierceness of love. You know, Song of Songs talks about this with romantic love. Love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as fierce as a grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. So if you're zealous for something, you won't let it be disregarded by others or by yourself. You see, Jesus' zealous love not simply works to restore worship, It's also the thing that drives him to the cross. It's also the thing that drives him to the cross. Jesus' zealous love is what drives him to save a people for himself to taste our death. The cross will always be shallow to us unless we see that it is the proof of Christ's longing for us, of his zeal for you. In fact, Jesus says that uh, they should destroy this temple when he's he's speaking about his body. He says that the only destruction, destruction of his body will result in our rescue and reconciliation. So the fury that Jesus displays against God's love being perverted is also the fury that he endures on the cross. I'll just say that again. The fury that Jesus displays at God's love being perverted is also the same fury... He endures for our sake on the cross. This is the glory of the gospel. You have to see that Jesus' love is not docile. It's ravenous and powerful and victorious. It does not lay down. So, Jesus' love Zeal is love for his Father and for us, and you see this especially in the cross. And it results in fury and real anger at his God being dishonored, his character being twisted, and our hope being lost. But none of this actually answers our first question, uh, how do you get this zeal? How does this actually work? So this is our third question. How do you get holy zeal? Holy zeal. So our third point is Christ's zeal is the fruit of his delight in the Father. Delight drives zeal. Delight drives zeal. So you can see this in verse 21. Jesus says, he is, I'm sorry, John tells us that Jesus' body is the temple. Jesus' body is the temple. What he means is, that everything the temple was supposed to be is now true of Jesus. So, let's just think through this for a second. The temple is proof of God with us. It's God's tent in the middle of his people's tents. John tells us, John chapter 1, 14, that Jesus took on flesh and tented with us. The temple is God's physical availability. Jesus touches and heals God provides a place for sacrifices to atone for sin in the temple. Jesus gives Himself as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. God provides a place for His name to dwell where His glory fills the rooms, where His Spirit is alive and moving, pouring out life in Jesus The fullness of deity dwells, and so the fullness of God's glory. In fact, Jesus is the name of God. He is the one who is indwelt and specially anointed by the Spirit. So what's inside the temple is now what's inside Jesus. So we, as His people, find refuge in the temple where our prayers and our singing and our delight fill us but also fill the building because we are in God's presence. Well, now in Jesus, He has His own refuge with the Father. He is a house of continual prayer and praise. In Jesus, His inner life is one of continual prayer and praise. Continual delight in the true God. Being in His Father's presence. In fact, John 1 also tells us the only God has had His head on the Father's chest. Jesus' inner life is an experience of total delight in the Father because He has this voice at the very core of His being. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. He is a house of delight and prayer. Now, if that's crazy... Let's just take it one step further. Here's the really wild and crazy thing. Look at verse 22. John tells us that Jesus' disciples uh, don't really understand this until after he's raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this when he was raised from the dead. Well, why then? Why after he's raised from the dead? John's kind of subtly telling us, and he'll do this further on, that what's happening for the disciples is the Spirit of God is coming to teach them. In fact, this is just what Jesus says will happen. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So what this means is that now, after the resurrection, you know what happens to his disciples? Everything that was true of Jesus now becomes true of his disciples through the work of the Spirit. Now they are indwelt by the Spirit. Now they begin to have an internal life, eternal, internal life of delight and joy in the Father. Now they, in their very inner beings, begin to have a constant life of prayer and praise. When Jesus was still on the earth, His templeness is confined to His body. But once He's ascended and sends the Spirit, His templeness is now given to all of His people. So now instead of there being one temple, there are billions of temples roaming around the earth, full of God's Spirit, full of God's delight, walking around, simply babbling and coming out of their mouths God's praise and God's delight. You have to see that this is what God is doing in your life. This is what God is after in your life. What this means is that the inner life that Jesus had is meant to be our inner life. The inner life that Jesus had is meant to be our inner life. So one of the things that this means is that it's a spiritual duty to enjoy God. It's a spiritual duty to enjoy God, to like being with Him, to delight in Him. Now, most of you have heard of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, he preached famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That's one of hundreds of sermons he have preached, he's preached. But what he's actually most known for by people who read him is his tremendous delight and joy in the Lord. Now, uh, you can look at this another time. I put a quote in, you, uh, in the front of the bulletin for you. We're not going to read it right now. Instead, what I'm going to read is a quote from his wife, Sarah Edwards. Uh, during the time of kind of the Great Awakening in the 1740s, uh, she had this tremendous experience of God's grace being poured out on her, of coming to know that God's grace was for her. Now, I just want to say uh, not only is Sarah Edwards a pastor's wife, uh, which is kind of can be a hard job. But also, she raised 11 children in the 1700s. Okay? This gal probably doesn't have her feet up most of the day. (laughs) Just put it that way. She's busy. But it turns out that busyness with children is not actually opposed to the Lord working, to the Lord meeting you in prayer. So let me just read this. This is a slightly longer quote, but stick with it. And just listen to her joy with the Lord. This is, uh, the Lord meets her in one, uh, one day after uh, listening to a guest preacher in prayer. While Mr. Reynolds was praying, these words in Romans 8.34 came into my mind. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, whom also makes intercession for us, which occasioned great sweetness and delight in my soul." But when I was alone, the words came to my mind with far greater power and sweetness. They appeared to me with undoubted certainty as the words of God and as the words which God did pronounce concerning me. My safety and happiness and eternal enjoyment of God's immutable love seemed as durable and unchangeable as God himself Melted and overcome by the sweetness of this assurance, I fell into a great flow of tears. The presence of God was so near and so real that I seemed scarcely conscious of anything else. The whole world, with all its enjoyments and all its troubles, seemed to be nothing. My God was my all, my only portion. I felt perfectly subdued and weaned from the world and more fully resigned to God than I had ever been conscious of before. I felt an entire indifference to the opinions and representations and conduct of mankind representing me. I was entirely swallowed up in God as my only portion, and His honor and glory was the object of my supreme desire and delight. At the same time, I felt a far greater love to the children of God than ever before. You see, what has happened in her soul is what the Lord is aiming at in our lives. In fact, you all, if you are in Christ, have had tastes of this. Some more often, some greater. But this is what happens when you are in Christ. This also means that if Jesus' inner life is supposed to be our life, it's not just a supposed to be. It's not just a should But that actually, once the Spirit of God comes in you, do you know what He starts doing? He starts pushing out the walls of your soul and making more and more room for Himself to fill your being. So that the Spirit of God, Jesus' inner life, is active inside you. He is actively working for this delight to define who you are. This happens, our zeal grows by basking in his delight and delighting in him. Basking in his delight and delighting in him. So what do we do with this? You know, oftentimes our inner lives can be uh, fairly untouched by the things we read and the things we talk about. So maybe we can answer some of these original questions. Why is God so often boring to us? I don't say all the time. But uh, why are, is there so much resistance in my own soul to the Lord giving me delight in Him? I just want to start with a few major barriers. A few major barriers to us having deeper zeal for the Lord. First barrier is our love of control kills zeal. Our love of control kills zeal. So this is true in our emotional life. You know, we shouldn't expect our devotion to burn for the Lord if we are distanced from and resistant to our own emotional life, the very place where the Lord is stirring. Your emotions exist for a reason. They are the oil check on your engine. They are the litmus test of your spiritual life. So we shouldn't be surprised if we find our emotions terrifying and resist them that at the same time, We also don't find the Lord stirring us very often. But of course, the Spirit of God is not afraid of your emotions. You know, personally, I think my struggle, my love of control manifests in keeping it cool, man-pleasing. You know, zeal is somewhat embarrassing. Jesus kind of gets out of his mind, zealous in the temple. Keep it cool, Jesus. Kind of embarrassing. (laughs) These are the guys we're trying to convince. Uh, I'm certainly not going to let people see my deepest, most personal passions if I'm bent on controlling what people think of me. It's easier to hate things and to say I hate things than to cry and be a blubbering mess because I love something so dearly. That's embarrassing. As long as I resist that, I shouldn't be surprised that I struggle with zeal. Well, the second barrier is our inexperience in trusting God. It actually limits our zeal. I don't say our lack of trust. I know you all are actually growing in trust all the time, and it's a pleasure to see. I have a front row seat on seeing this congregation grow and thrive. But our inexperience in trusting God is a limit on our zeal. And what I mean is this. If we are not currently involved in deeds of love in showing mercy to the broken, in pursuing justice and caring for the lowly and the oppressed, we are actively isolating ourselves from the challenges those relationships bring. If we are not engaged in deeds of love and pursuing justice, we are actively isolating ourselves from the challenges those relationships bring. Of course, we like being isolated because it feels safe. And that's because we're inexperienced in trusting God. It's scary. It is scary to trust God old pastor of mine used to say, uh, we find the New Testament boring because it describes a life we are not currently living. But if we began to actually live according to its commands, we would find it one of the most startling and profound documents ever written. It would be our life better than bread. I promise you that if you begin taking risks and serving the Lord, if you begin having those awkward, hard conversations, asking the hard questions, going and being with the people who are challenging to you, all of the verses about the comfort and the Spirit's work will be a whole lot more important to you right away. Our third barrier, and this is the last barrier, is that our zeal will always sputter out if we're looking for inspiration for inspiration. You know, uh, what I mean here is that I I think we struggle with boredom with God because we expect God to be somewhat exciting and inspiring kind of the way that movies are. I don't mean inspiring in the sense of the scriptures being inspired, but in the sense of Instagram pictures or well-designed, beautiful graphics. You know, I think that Jesus is, his experience of much of his ministry was actually not very personally inspiring. Remember his prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane? He says, Lord, if there is any way, take this cup away from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Part of me doubts that Jesus would have succeeded as an American pastor. You know, his personal, terrib- uh, personal his branding is terrible, you know. Uh, his packaging is just uh, not appealing at all. The cross... It is the exact opposite of crisp, attractive, well-designed posters or dreamy Instagram pictures. There was no soundtrack to the cross except mockery. The cross was dirty, rough, sudden torment. But the cross was the pinnacle of Jesus' zeal. His zeal for his people willingly and soberly taking onto himself our sins. The cross and the resurrection are the measure of Jesus' zeal for your delight in God and your being delighted in. So those are some of the barriers. Let me just give one real practical what to do. Try to make it as simple as possible. If Jesus takes worship this seriously, you should too put some real brass tacks on this, you need to be in worship every week. And when you come, come seeking the Lord. Right? Singing from your gut, praying like it's your last chance. One of the biggest things that's happening here in worship okay, is actually God's ministering to you. You are being reminded of God's love for you. Right? From the call to worship where God's inviting you, welcoming you into the confession of sin God, here's all my mess and you still welcome me to the sermon, hearing God's word and responding to him and feasting and all the time being receiving his delight and being received. God is restoring you. He is working on your behalf in worship. You come to bask in the Spirit's work in his, as we pray and we sing. Of course, you receive these things from each other as well praying for each other, greeting each other. So your zeal for Christ can only grow by basking in his zeal for you. If you sit at his feet and soak in his care for you, I promise you, your love for him will grow strong. Let me pray. Lord, we come to you now and pray for your spirit to be at work, to be pushing out the walls we've constructed in our own hearts, making space for yourself, Lord, We long for you to make space for yourself and our own souls.